One of the most important things whenever you're going to communicate anything is to know who you're speaking to. Because who you're speaking to changes not only kind of what you say, but how you say it. Illustrations and examples you might use to communicate something will change given on who you're speaking to. It's what in communication studies you might call audience adaptation. In marketing, you might call segmentation and targeting. But it's the understanding that different people have different questions, different concepts, different understandings of things. And if you have something you want to communicate, you need to tailor the message so that it's clear to the person you're speaking to. I had a crash course reminder in this process a few weeks ago when I got to speak at our junior high retreat. Now, speaking to junior high students is substantially different than speaking to you guys on a Sunday morning. And they're different in a few ways. One, they're generally shorter, uh, but they're also sometimes a lot more fun and, and more interactive. But here's the thing. I had two kinds of professors, basically, in my time in universities. One was the kind of professor that was a generally good guy, and they would tell you at the beginning of the semester, everyone has a 100 in the class. And it's your job to keep it. Or the other kind, the glass half empty guy that says everyone has a zero and it's your job to earn it. Now, when speaking to you guys, because you're here on a Sunday morning, right? You chose to be here for the most part. Y'all are the kind of professor that starts with a 100 that says it's yours to lose. I have your attention. Now, if it's really boring or obnoxious, you're going to tune me out at some point. But we've started at a good place where you're listening. Now, if I'm speaking to junior high kids, that's not where you start. You start at zero and you have to earn their attention. Assume they're not listening until proven otherwise. That's the basic understanding of working with junior high students. So we do some things to try to get them involved. Uh, We'll ask questions and encourage their feedback. And you want also not just personally to encourage their feedback. You also want the other students to encourage the feedback as well. But you have to be careful because they can get out of hand. So if you say so-and-so gave a great answer, let them know they gave a great answer. They might start cheering. A party might break out. There's a pinata. We don't know how it happened. But the whole thing is done. So you have to give them some structured ways that they can say, good job. And so what I'll do with junior high kids, particularly, is I'll say, hey, let's show them some love, and then we'll do something. A number of you guys were at the retreat, so you've got a leg up on this. We're testing the rest of you. So when someone does something good and they give a good answer, we say, let's show them some love, and we go one, two, three. See the people that were there in. One clap timed with everyone, and then we don't lose it, right? So I'm going to test you guys. First service, they did okay. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that you guys can top them. And the winner gets to hear me next Sunday, too. You guys ready? One, two, three. Not bad. Not bad. So we would do things like that with junior high because we want to get them locked in. We don't do that on Sunday mornings. I don't think we're going to adopt it. Uh, but you guys tell me at the end if you like doing that. Uh, the scriptures are, are not foreign with this concept of audience adaptation either. When you read the scriptures, you'll find the Bible says different things to different groups of people. Not contradictory things, just different messages based upon their need. You might read the book of 1 Corinthians, which is addressing this really crazy Greek city that had all sorts of wild, sinful things going on, really in public. And they're going to say one thing and address one set of problems, but then you're going to turn, you're going to read the book of Hebrews, and it's going to address a whole different set of issues. Because the book of Hebrews is aptly written to a Hebrew or Jewish population that had strict moral codes that were enforced by family background and pressure as well as a broader cultural 
movement towards modesty and propriety. So you address different things. But even in these differences, there's some universality of human nature. So some things that regardless of the setting and the culture that are just the same about all of us. And that is, at its core, our sin nature. That whether we're really good people by a worldly moral standard or really bad people by the same standard, we struggle with this sin nature. And I want you to look in Jeremiah chapter 2 just briefly before we get rolling. Jeremiah chapter 2 addresses from this really broad perspective the problem of our sin. Now, Jeremiah doesn't list a number of sins and say you've sinned in this way, this way, this way, this way. He goes to the root, to the core of the issue of why we sin and are disobedient to God. And he says it's two problems. He says, my people, in verse 13, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says, at the core... The sin of my people comes down to two things. Now, it may look a hundred different ways, but at its core, it's two things. One, they've rejected me, the fountain of living water. Now, this is important imagery in a desert culture to talk about clear, beautiful, flowing water that satisfies your thirst. He says, I am the fountain of living water, the satisfaction of all of your thirsts and longings, your need for meaning, hope, joy, and identity, your only hope for salvation and eternity. It's all wrapped up in God. But he says, here's here's what's happened. You've rejected me. But when you did, when you decided that meaning, hope, and satisfaction to your longings and thirst was not found in God, you, you, you walked over and you got a shovel and you started digging your own well. And you started looking for other things to fill you, other things to satisfy you. But the problem is, is that those things, whatever they are, they, they always stop short of delivering what they promised. So we just keep digging. And we just keep digging. And the problem is that the law of diminishing return hits in. And we have to just keep going further and deeper to get the same excitement or pleasure. And this happens in a couple different ways. There's one way that's very obvious to all observers. And that's the pursuit of kind of worldly desires, passions, comforts, and pleasures. And it's obvious when someone is, is going after those things. That's how addiction cycles get going is that someone looks to this thing to fix their problems to medicate the issue to make it go away and it works for a moment and then it stops and then you go deeper and it works for a moment and then it stops and then you go deeper and it works for a moment and then it stops and it can look hundreds of ways it can be sexual activity it could be drugs it could be eating it could be purchasing products enjoying comforts having vacations it's any number of things that if we go to them for our longings and our hopes to be satisfied And fulfilled, they fall short. See, but there's another way. And I think it's much more dangerous because it's harder to spot. And that is the way of pursuing religiosity to meet our needs. To fulfill and identify ourselves, to give ourselves meaning and satisfaction. Not through worldly things, but through religious devotion. And see, when the scriptures address the church... In Jerusalem, in this letter, the Hebrews. It's very different than the way they talk to Ephesian Christians or Corinthian Christians dealing with their pursuit of satisfaction and things outside of God. 
where they address obvious sin patterns, when speaking to the Hebrews, the Scriptures address things that are much more subtle. Ways of of having religious life that diminish our need and thirst for God. Where we find identity and religious behavior and duty. We find pride and prominence in religious activity and how well we follow the rules. But in the end, we're distant from God. So I want you to begin with that in mind and say, we're going to, over the next four weeks in this series, Jesus is better, dig into the reality that Jesus is better than not only the world and what it offers, than religious devotion as well. And I think that's a particularly helpful and probably somewhat convicting message for our audience. Because you're at church on a Sunday morning. Which tells me something about you. You have a basic leaning towards some kind of religious devotion or you wouldn't be here. The other option is your friend told you were going to lunch early and they brought you here and they tricked you. So if you're in that camp, I'm sorry. I hope the lunch is good. Um, We're glad you're here anyway. But if you got up on Sunday morning on a day like this and decided to get the kids dressed, feed them breakfast and come to church, you fall squarely into the camp of someone who just might be a little bit religious. So Hebrews is very helpful for us. It's also difficult to wrestle with. A few things about the book of Hebrews that are helpful to know. There's a question of who it's written by. Now, the book of Hebrews, unlike most of the letters of the New Testament, doesn't tell you who wrote it. And so it doesn't have what we would call an internal testimony. So there are some questions. I believe it was written by Paul, just in case you're familiar with that debate, because the early church believed that. Clement of Alexandria said that the book was written by Paul in Hebrew and then translated by Luke into Greek so that the non-Hebrew speaking church outside of Jerusalem can benefit from it. So I'll refer to the book as being written by Paul. If that bothers you, just pretend I said something else. It was written to Hebrew Jewish Christians predominantly there in Jerusalem who were struggling with what it meant to walk with Jesus in the midst of a difficult environment around A.D. 60 to A.D. 70. And its primary primary purpose, if you just step away and and get the 3,000-foot view, is to inspire these people who know Jesus to identify themselves and seek hope and salvation not in their religious activity but in Jesus alone. And where we want to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll go through verse 4, is how we understand and approach our Bibles. How we understand and approach the Scriptures as believers. And so I want to invite you to chapter 1, verse 1 of Hebrew. The letter begins this way. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the scriptures begin here, telling us something about how the Bible came to be, the process of us receiving the word of God. See, one of the unique things about the Bible and about the Christian faith is that the Bible is written by multiple authors across hundreds of years on three continents and in three languages. 
You see, every other major religious text that guides a religion was written by one man at one moment in time or across a period of years, but written by a person. And so the scriptures didn't take on this movement of God telling a story over time. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is the central and common themes that trace through it, even though it has so many different human authors and was written in so many different places and circumstances. That this unifying principle of the sinfulness of humanity, God's mercy and grace and desire to save, thread through the entire thing. But the scriptures tell us it was written at many times, which is the understanding in theological terms we call progressive revelation. The idea that the story wasn't told all at once, but that the Bible slowly, over time, has been revealed to us. And that the picture God is painting is getting clearer and clearer as the story gets told. Probably the most simple understanding or example of this concept is found in simply how we're going to receive salvation. Who is going to save us from our sin? See, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, Adam and Eve are told not to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And they do, and there's judgment. But based in the bottom of this judgment, God tells the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush you. And it's just this little hint that something's coming, that the serpent will be defeated and be defeated by the child of the woman. The story goes on in Genesis chapter 12. God calls a man and calls him Abraham, says he's going to be father of a great nation and that that great nation would be blessed. And through them, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. And so now this idea that there's going to come a redeemer, he's going to come from the family of this man, Abraham. Years go on and they they become the nation of Israel. They're established with a kingdom and a king named David. And David receives a promise from God that one of his sons will reign over all of creation from Jerusalem on the throne with perfect righteousness and justice forever. So the promise becomes a little clearer. It's through a king from the line of David who will reign forever. And then for years the people wondered who this son of David might be until the angels heralded the birth of Jesus. And we begin to know as the gospel story picks up that it's this Jesus who's going to be our king, but he's going to be a different kind of king. He's a king who will die for his people. See, most kings send their people into battle to die for them, and this king does the opposite and goes into harm's way to save us. And the picture gets clearer as the story goes till we see that it's Jesus who is our king. And he's the kind of king that dies for his people. More than that, he's the kind of king that rises again and that he'll come for us. Now, the issue with progressive revelation is one that the story gets told and it gets clear, but there's also continuity in the story. That the story doesn't contradict itself. It just enlightens us to what was meant in previous days. Deuteronomy chapter 13 gives this warning. When talking about how to deal with those who claim to be prophets, he says, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the Lord, your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord, your God with all your heart. And with all your soul. So there's a standard of whether or not we're to accept someone as a messenger from God. And that message is being from God. And you'll notice that it's continuity with what God has already revealed about himself. 
said, so even if someone comes to you, claims to be a prophet, makes a prediction of the future, and it's true, and they demonstrate some spiritual power, but if, if upon doing that, they say, let's go worship a God we did not know, and they change who God is at his core, we're to be rejected by them. We're to stay away from them because they're a false prophet. We expect in Christian theology there to be continuity of progressive revelation. And that's a distinction from other religious groups that kind of hold this idea. One example that's pretty obvious is Mormonism. And when Mormonism, they still believe that God is speaking through their prophets. The problem is, is that they don't always agree with one another. So, so from Brigham Young, who they named the university to, until 1978, men of African descent were not allowed to hold the office of priesthood or any form of religious leadership. But in 1978, they decided that they could. So you begin to ask a few questions of, of your Mormon friends and you'll find some, some odd answers. They say, well, in 1978, we received a revelation that said that men of African descent could, in fact, uh, hold the office of priesthood. Well, so my question is, well, what about all the stuff that Brigham Young, your prophet, said when he said they couldn't? So did God change his mind in 1978 and decide all of a sudden that he was okay with black guys? Or was it prior to that he didn't like them? Or did Brigham Young lie to us? Right, because it's one or the other. And what you'll see is in their idea of progressive revelation, continuity is not important. We say what we want to say at the moment, and then we cover it up. In the biblical understanding of progressive revelation, there's continuity. The story gets clarified and becomes enlightened but it never contradicts itself. So at many times in the past, the scriptures have been communicated to us through prophets as the story got clearer and clearer. In addition to that, the scriptures came to us in many ways. It's not just one form that we receive the Bible. The Bible is full of divinely inspired dreams and visions, divinely inspired historical accounts, divinely inspired sermons, letters, poetry, and wisdom statements. All inspired by God, but they came in different forms. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1 tells us a bit about how that scripture came to be and how the Spirit of God ensured that it took place. In chapter 1, verse 21 of 2 Peter, it says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what the scriptures tell us is there, there were a number of ways in which prophecy and the word of God came to us, but none of it was rooted in men desiring to say something. It was initiated by God who wanted to communicate something to his people. And so he carried along prophets and they wrote as he led them. And this is one of the unique things that we get is that God carried these men along. And so it, these men wrote these things in a way that sounds like them with their personality, their language choice, their style. That's why reading John sounds different than reading Paul, which sounds different than reading Jeremiah. Because different men wrote them, and God carried them along so that their individual personality, style, and language was all kept, and yet delivered a message from God. This is what we call inspiration, that the Bible's inspired. That it was originated and brought forth from the heart of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we get this plainly taught. He addresses Timothy and reminds him of his learning of the Scriptures. And he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You get that? All of this given to us 
from God. So how do we get the scriptures? Well, Timothy said, or Paul says to Timothy that the scriptures were God-breathed. In some translations, it'll simply say inspired. The, the Greek terms is theopneustos, right? The, you get these theos, Greek for God. We get theology. Think pneumonia, breathing wind, right? We put these words together. He basically invents the word to communicate how the scriptures came to be. That they were breathed out by God. That God gave them to us. So they're reliable, trustworthy, and true. And the Spirit breathed out the word and carried along men as they wrote God's word. With stunning consistency to one another. Creating a story of God's redemptive plan that unfolds with amazing clarity in front of us. Now, the scriptures are written for a particular purpose as well. And it's important that we understand not only the process and the people that put it together. But also the purpose. And we see that. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, we see first that the scripture was written so that we might be made wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That the, the, the point of the scripture is first that those who engage with it would understand the story of redemption and that they would believe in Jesus and receive salvation because of the testimony of God's word. And second, that they would be equipped or prepared to do what God has called them to do, that they might carry out Every good work. So the scripture's purpose is to lead us first into salvation as a testimony of God's grace through Jesus. And second, to prepare us to follow Jesus faithfully and do what he's called us to do. The purpose of the scripture is not to make us knowledgeable people. It's to make us people who passionately pursue Jesus. Now, after we kind of talk about how the scriptures came to be, we get this interesting contrast in verse 2. So back in Hebrews 1, verse 2. So God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So he said, in the past, God spoke through the prophets. And here's what the prophets did for us. They gave us an accurate telling of God's glory and nature. But when God spoke through Jesus, he gave us an embodiment and display of his glory and nature. So the words accurately described who God is. But when God spoke through Jesus, we were not told, we were shown. And God spoke loudly and clearly through sending His Son beyond what He had said in His Word. Because at the moment that the wheels of the plan began to move and Jesus took on human flesh, and the moment He walked to the cross on our behalf, the words of God that He had promised years before were made real. And God spoke through action in a powerful way that said, what I have promised to do, I will do. In a way that you didn't expect, in a way that's costly, in a way that no one saw coming. That God would take on human form and send His only Son, God incarnate, to die for sinful humanity. All of the promises of God He made good on, on that day. And so He spoke in a greater way. Not just in words that accurately described who He was, but on taking the very nature of humanity upon himself and rightly representing to us who he is. 
You see, no one expected this. In fact, the prophets didn't see this coming. In First Peter, the scriptures tell us that they wrestled to understand what was going on here. In First Peter chapter 1, verse 10. It says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. I want you to think about this. In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. And those prophets longed to know what they were prophesying. So they got out their scrolls and they searched the other Old Testament prophecies, hoping and praying that the Spirit of God in them would inspire them and enlighten them to see what God was going to do. And they couldn't see it. Even the men who prophesied it. More than that, he says, the angels didn't know what was going to happen. They longed to look into this plan to see what God would do. And it's been revealed to us through his son. Things that the prophets of old, the men who wrote the very words of scripture, longed to understand. Things that the angels didn't expect to see. We have been recipients of. And what did we see? Well, Hebrews 1 tells us we saw the glory of Jesus as the heir of all things. The one who holds all power and authority. We saw the power of Jesus as the creator and sustainer of all things. The beauty of Jesus as the exact representation of God, His nature and His character. And we see the grace of Jesus making purification for sins as our Savior and Redeemer. So all of the promises of God we see rolling out in Jesus. So the scriptures led us to this, but in Jesus, God spoke louder and clearer. Because while the words were an accurate description, Jesus is an accurate representation of who God is. And this is incredibly important that we understand the value of and the meaning and intention of the Scriptures. Because in religious environments, we can get skewed on this. And there are two things that I, that I want to bring up that, that are entirely possible and should concern all of us who are church folk. The first is that it's entirely possible to study, know, and even love your Bible and not love Jesus. I want to let that sink in. It is entirely possible... To know, love, and study your Bible and not love Jesus. And second, it is entirely possible to have committed mass amounts of of Scripture to memory and not love the Lord. And that should concern us. Because I've read the Bible enough to have met the Pharisees who loved and revered the text but hated Jesus. And to see that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, that Satan himself quotes the Scripture to Jesus. And we should be kind of on guard knowing that that's a reality. And so here's what I want to do as we try to make this this understanding that God spoke through the prophets, but he has spoken louder and clearer through Jesus. Understand it's important that we approach the Scriptures, but there are five ways to approach it wrong. 
And we're doing this way because I think, and you'll see this in the end, there's only one way to approach the scriptures right. But there's a few ways to do it wrong. And I, I have a feeling, because I found myself a lot on this list, that I'm not alone. And so I want to begin with these five ways that you can know that you're approaching the Bible wrong. The first is this. You read for information, not transformation. You read the Bible because you desire to know something, not because you desire to be changed by it. I'd like to have insight and understanding. I'd like to have knowledge. I don't necessarily want to change. People who read the Bible this way, looking for information and not transformation, believe that the measure of their spiritual maturity is the amount of Bible study they participate in. Not understanding that Bible study is not the measure of maturity, it is simply the means of pursuing it. So the scriptures are to equip us for good work, and people in this camp believe that that good work is going to more Bible studies. Rather than actually being used by God to do something. These people are quick to study the Bible and slow to serve. They like information. They watch PBS and they approach the Bible as if it were a documentary and they want to learn more. With no intention of ever doing anything. That's an enticing camp because we get to see, seem spiritual and feel good about our spirituality and never follow Jesus. The second way to approach the Bible wrong is to read the Bible as if it were a roadmap to all of our dreams. That the Bible provided the key and that if I just did the things that it says to do, then, then these transactions would happen with God where he owes me some stuff that I really want. So if I want perfectly well-behaved kids, I'll search the Proverbs, I'll find a few, and I'll, I'll put the key in. The problem is that it, it doesn't work, right? I am knee-deep in raising kids. I'm not an expert, but, but I've learned a few things. One is no amount of tricks that I learn are going to eradicate my children's sin nature from them. They, they don't need me to have some cool parenting tricks. They need Jesus to transform them. I'm not going to fix them this week, next week, next month, next year. They have a bent towards sin just like I do. And you know what? At, at its core, the same things I wrestled with as a 10-year-old boy, I wrestle with today. Now, they look different. I don't stomp a lot and, and throw things when I get angry. But I still get angry. I just learned how adults express anger. But at the core, right, that bent towards sin, it's going to go with them for their life, barring God taking it from them, you're not going to fix them. See, the problem with this perspective, if we view the Bible as this roadmap to get the things that we want, is that we end up disillusioned because we don't get them, because they don't work, because that's not what the Bible is. So we walk away from our really neat plan that we think we devised, disillusioned with God for not giving us something he never promised to give us. So some people read the Bible as a roadmap to have all their dreams come true. The third wrong way to approach the Bible, and boy, we do this one, is to read the Bible looking for permission to do the sinful thing we wanted to do anyway. I've got this sin that I really like and I don't want to let go. And so I'm just going to hang on to that right here. And I'm going to look to find some nuance in the Bible that allows me to keep doing this. Because I'd like to keep it. It's an old friend. The most obvious example in our culture today is the issue of homosexuality. The Bible is abundantly clear that it dishonors God. 
And it's not acceptable behavior for the people of God. And yet there are long books being published describing why that if you really understood when the Bible said that a man should not lie with another man as he does with a woman because it's an abominable thing, that God didn't mean that. And what he meant was it's okay. And it takes a really long book to say that because you have to do some really impressive gymnastics and, and play origami with your Bible so that you get it folded just the right way to say what you want. But, but that's not exclusive to that sin. It's just the one that's most prominent culturally in front of us. But we all have some stuff like that. I was right to be angry. So I was justified in the way that I acted. So I'm going to go, see, be angry and yet do not sin. See, I can be angry as long as I don't sin. Of course, I'm defining sin in a way that makes me okay. It's easy for us to read the Bible looking for permissions and exceptions for our sinful passions. The fourth wrong way to approach the Bible is to read the Bible to find ammo to win an argument. And I've done that. We've had a disagreement with someone about something. And so the goal is to prove to them from the Bible that they're wrong. The problem with that is that's about me having pride in being right. And it has nothing to do with me following Jesus or that person following Jesus. It has to do with who's going to be more prideful in wielding their Bible against the other person. And that's where we get the phrase Bible thumpers. And if we do this, it's accurate of us. The fifth way to approach the Bible wrongly is to look at it as a grocery list of behaviors. And that if you do these things, God is pleased with you. To take all the commands of scriptures, at least the ones that we want to follow, put them on a list and check it off each day. And to believe that if we do that, that God's pleased with us. The scriptures would say that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. So this isn't a matter of getting the list right and working hard enough to do it. That's not the point of the scripture altogether. You see, we can be devoted and active and plugged in to reading the Bible and do it all wrong so that it doesn't work for us. We can read the Bible looking to be informed and not changed. We can read the Bible looking for a map to the stuff we really want. We can read the Bible looking for permission for our sins. We can read the Bible looking for ammo to win an argument. And we can read the Bible looking for a checklist of behavior that will make God love us. And all of those will utterly fail. There is one right way to read the Scriptures. And only one. We approach the Bible understanding that it unveils Jesus. And so this is what we do. The only right way to read the Scripture is to read the Bible with the passion to seek Jesus and be conformed to His image. And when I approach the Scriptures, there are the revelation of God's saving plan through Jesus. And the point is for me to love Jesus more, to seek after Jesus harder and to be changed and transformed to be like Jesus. And any other way of approaching the Bible, even if it wasn't on my list, is an unacceptable means. Only seeking to know and be changed to be like Jesus is an acceptable approach to the Scripture. And that's what it was given to us for. That we might be wise unto salvation and equipped to be used by God do good works that honor him. And so here's where we come to. 
is that every one of these kind of misguided approaches to the Scripture offers something. And at the core, they offer control. I have control of the process and control of the system and control of the outcome, or at least I have the myth that I do. And we believe that this control, that these benefits that it's going to give us are somehow great when the blessing that's being offered to us is Jesus himself. Better than all of the satisfaction, all of the pride and self-righteousness that religion offers, better than all of the joy and comfort and pleasure that the sin and the world offers, these two short-term fixes can't help us. The only thing that's lasting is Jesus. He's the blessing. And Jesus is better. Jesus is better than control. Jesus is better than self-righteousness. Jesus is better than the pleasures and comforts of this world. He's the fountain of living water and inexhaustible joy. He's better. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have sent your word to us as a testimony of your son and that you have sent your son to us as the fulfillment of all of the promises you've made. Father, we thank you that you spoke so loudly and clearly through Jesus. And that you've given us your word that we might seek to know him. Father, I pray that you would create and stir in us a passion to approach your word and to approach it rightly. That you would open our eyes to the beauty of the salvation that we have in Jesus. And that our hearts would be content in him knowing that he is better. It's in his name we pray. Amen.